on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, monitoring the channel to detail the effects of fish farming. And the one site where we saw um, the nutrient um, impacts, I guess, or the nutrient enrichment indicators being higher, we actually saw higher canopy cover as well, which, which suggests that the, the low-level nutrient stimulus from the salmon farm may actually, may actually be stimulating the kelp productivity on the reef as well. And a passion for flowers on one North Tasmanian farm. So this has all been, only been here the last six months, really. So we had our berry patch there, and I saw this space here was going to waste. I'm moving out there with the tiller. <laughs> so here we go again. Yeah, lots of flowers. More flowers later in the program. Also, new protocols being tested in the Dontracasto Channel to see the effects of fish farming. That story coming up for you shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday. We'll also check the latest rainfall predictions for the next three months from the Bureau with their climate outlook. And there's an international workshop on sea urchins underway in Launceston. Our reporter, Larissa Smith, will detail the two-day program in just a moment for you. Plus, of course, being Wednesday, Richard Bailey with the Livestock Markets. We'll check the weather as well and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 is that number, 0438 922936. First up today, an international workshop addressing the impacts and solutions to managing the long-spined sea urchin in southern Australian waters is underway in Launceston. The event comes days before the start of hearings into a Senate inquiry into the invasive species. Our reporter Larissa Smith is there at the workshop. Thanks, Tony. I'm with Ian Dutton, who is the General Manager for Marine Resources with NRE Tasmania. And we're at this uh, this seminar over the next two days, this national conference on the long-spined sea urchin. What an amazing turnout, Ian. You know, we're delighted. We've brought together about 150 key stakeholders in urchins and urchin science and management from across Australia and also some international guests to share their experience. What's the premise of this gathering ahead of the Senate inquiry hearing uh, on Friday? So long-spine sea urchins have become a major problem in southeastern Australia over the last 30, 40 years as climate change has extended the influence of the eastern Australian current. Here in Tasmania we've had long-spine sea urchins eating away on our east coast reefs for about 30 years now and we've begun addressing them through a program called the AIRF, the Abalone Industry Investment Fund, but we really need to have a more regional and coordinated approach. So we bring people together from across the southeast of Australia, from Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania, together with the federal government and, and many other stakeholders, including Aboriginal, cultural fishers, etc., to really understand how we might be more coordinated in our approach to urchin control. Because talking to the people in the room today, the, the biggest issue is, is control, but you can't control... Uh, the dispersion of the species. You can't control the, the warming current which is bringing them in from northern Australia. No, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, these issues speak to the importance of, of addressing climate change, which is really the driving force behind all this change we're experiencing. But that said, we're now living with this change. We've been living with it for a long time. And so in Tasmania, we've actually pioneered an industry because unlike the crown of thorns starfish on the Great Barrier Reef, which is also a problem species, this urchin has an economic value. The row of the urchin is actually actually a very valuable uh, fishery commodity both in Australia and internationally and so we've actually tapped into working with Tasmanian commercial divers, the Abilene industry, many other folks to try and uh, explore the economic uh, 
opportunity associated with the species at the same time achieving a broader scale control approach. Can they be controlled? Can it, can it be eradicated? No, I don't believe eradication is possible, uh, but we will get it to a point where it, it will have a much lower ecological threshold. We heard this morning one of the presentations from Scott Ling at IMAS point to the importance of, of getting urchins down to a level where kelp and other habitat that's been destroyed by urchins can come back again. And that's going to take a very concerted effort and a very focused effort. So a lot of our work in this workshop will be working out where do we target our resources to have the maximum effect to restore those those, those kelp beds and those other rocky reef habitats that are important to fisheries like abalone, rock lobster and other, other species. Do you think that the closure of some of those fishery zones like rock lobsters who can predate um, in those areas have assisted in the recovery of some of those kelp beds? Look, it's a really uh, tricky question, that one, because rock lobster uh, have, have not been at a threshold long, for a long, long time to be able to Im control the, the arrival of these urchins. And so, as, John, as Scott said this morning, uh, we're looking at probably 100 years plus before we had any impact from that. So we've really got to look at other kinds of control mechanisms. And the primary one currently, in the, and perhaps the most significant one from an economic point of view, is the harvesting. We, we're currently harvesting about 500 tonnes a year of urchins that are processed here that add a lot of value, a lot of jobs. There's a lot of economic opportunity associated with that. So unlike the crown of thorns, as I mentioned, we've got the opportunity to utilise an economic strategy for control alongside areas where there's perhaps not the economic viability of doing that and, and engaging more traditional methods, including um, just hand harvesting like they do with crown of thorns. With that, you need a big pot of money. Is that in the pipeline? So we've been very fortunate. The Tasmanian State Government a few years ago committed to the Abalone Industry Reinvestment Fund. We've spent about $2.5 million over the last five years on that fund, and we're now identifying what would it would take at the regional scale. And very importantly, as you would appreciate, going upstream, going up to where New South Wales and Victoria, where the urchins largely originate from now, uh, would be a very significant part of that strategy. So we're now talking with our counterparts in other states and with other Commonwealth agencies to see what the opportunities might be for a more regional approach, because that's ultimately the most cost-effective way of addressing this issue in Tasmania. What's on the program tomorrow? So very exciting tomorrow, we've got a, a number of our international speakers sharing their experience. For example, in Japan, they've also turned an, a problem species into an economic opportunity. They've produced a whole range of urchin products that I had not even heard of, to be honest. Uh, although, to, to be fair, Tasmania is also at the forefront of innovation. Today at lunch, we're actually featuring a local urchin dumpling that's made by Oscar's Seafoods here in Launceston. So I'm excited to sample that for the first time. I've tried them. <laughs> yes. and, and They're look, interesting. They are. And, and look, urchins... Um, are, are a really uh, valued commodity in many markets and we're also looking at ways in which through these international experiences we might add value to that. But we're hearing from people who've done lots of problem species control. We've got an expert here on lionfish in Florida and one of the the, the importance of that approach is that it, often there's challenges between how do you maximise the economic potential of a species and also address the conservation issues. So speakers like that have got 10, 20, sometimes 30 years experience. They're going to share with us about their approach in places like California, New Zealand and Japan. Wonderful. Uh, that's it from me, Tony, in Launceston at this uh, fascinating conference over the next two days. It's back to you. Thank you, our Launceston reporter Larissa Smith at day one of the workshop on sea urchins. Talking there to Ian Dutton, General Manager of Farm Marine Resources in Tasmania. And the workshop does continue tomorrow, as you heard, with some international speakers from the US, Japan and New Zealand. And that's ahead of the Senate inquiry hearing in Hobart on Friday, examining the urchin problem. You must have eaten a sea urchin, have you? What's the verdict? Would you gladly have some for lunch right now? Maybe an urchin dumpling. Larissa, I think, was right on the fence there. She's 
tried it. A touch of lime or lemon juice might be good. I haven't tried it yet, I must admit. 0438922936. 0438922936. Eating them seems a good way to resolve a lot of the issues under the sea. Well, a group of Tasmanian scientists are 18 months into using a new method and protocol for monitoring the impact of fish farms on reefs in the Dontracasto Channel in the state's south. Protocols have been designed by scientists at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies. Research fellow Dr Camille White says while the analysis is in its early days, it should help governments and the public understand the impact of farms over a longer period of time. There's a lot of public concern, I guess, around the potential sustainability of salmon aquaculture in our in our coastal waters, and um, everyone has a has a right to be to be concerned, I guess. And there's a real push, I guess, from the state government to to better understand these sorts of interactions, so they can develop mon- management strategies moving into the future. So, what's good about the method that you've developed? Yeah, so it's a method that's that we've um, that we've come up with to try to target nutrient enrichment effects on um, the temperate reefs. Um, so it sort of shifts away from looking at the species assemblage or the biodiversity. It takes a whole heap of parameters that we would normally associate with nutrient impact on um, on temperate reefs, and I guess looks to sort of um, index or classify those um, on based on their presence or absence or or how much we see at any given site. And you've picked like three different reef areas in the Don Tricasto Channel. Um, it's probably worth noting that the method's still in still in, in development, and and we're sort of still testing it out. And what, the work that we did in the Don Tricasto Channel was was far more around um, testing the method than it was actually um, trying to look for impact. And we found that that depending on on sort of the exposure to nutrient enrichment, and it wasn't just exposure to, to salmon aquaculture, it was exposure exposure to nutrient sources such as such as estuaries or um, or, or urbanisation. And we found that you know the more ex- the sites that had higher nutrient exposure also tended to have higher enrichment parameters, or we saw higher enrichment parameters at those sites as well. So, um, in terms of a first test, the method actually worked quite well in terms of detecting a broad scale enrichment gradient in the Dontracasto. Okay, now you used divers, did you? to collect some of this data? Yeah, it was a diver-based approach. The temperate reef ecosystems are, are a little bit complex in terms of being a three-dimensional habitat and where possible it's nice to put divers in the water because you can characterise the structure that, that exists down there rather than trying to assess an image off a flat surface, if that makes sense. So are they looking at images or are they taking samples of water or, or is it photos or...? Um, so it's a quadrat-based quadrat assessment method. So a diver goes into the water and essentially puts out a big square down on the down on the on the substrate and then the diver will score everything that exists within that square so they'll look at the amount of um, canopy so the amount of kelp that's in that square along with all of these um, these parameters that we use to characterize enrichment like the epiphytic algae the filamentous algae which um, the red is that the red one uh, no it's it's actually um, what a lot of people think of as marine snot (laughs) oh yes we've heard a lot of talk about that I'm sure you have heard a lot of talk about that Um, and along with a few species that we sort of picked out from our biodiversity assessments that we know respond really quickly to the nutrient enrichment so it's it's sort of a multifaceted approach and it takes into account some of those those things that people see and sort of have that um i guess that ick factor like the like the um the filamentous algae or the, the snot algae um but along with um parameters as well that we know have species that do respond to that the presence of nutrient in the environment so it's part of um, the importance of the method also about getting that baseline 
Yeah, so um, definitely. So we, we want to know um, the condition of, of our ecosystems um, to be able to benchmark change or future change from. We did work on the biodiversity of these reef systems too in the intensive salmon growing areas. So we've got the biodiversity data as well and, and then it's just looking at, at the functional response too. Um, I think unfortunately in um, places like the Don Tricasto, we, we don't really have a good record of what the reefs were like prior to, prior to farming. So it's really um, looking at what we can do um, in terms of best practice now. Uh, have you noticed, noticed some changes across the time that you have been sort of looking at this model? Is that something you can talk about? Um, yeah, look, I think um, in terms of um, long-term change, um, the study that we used to um, validate the method, it actually only used three time points and um, they were within 18 months of each other. So we can't really, can't really comment on, on, on change, but I think there is probably a hope that this method will get adopted into monitoring programs moving forward and, and we will have that capacity to start looking at, at change over a longer time series. One thing you did note, I think, in your talk was there was a little bit more canopy of certain seaweeds in some nutrient-rich areas. Yeah, I think um, the, the one site where we did see um, sort of, I guess, sustained nutrient enrichment effects, I think the real concern is that, that nutrient enrichment will lead to that loss of, of the canopy-forming kelp, the, the, the kelp that we rely on to provide so many ecosystem services. And the one site where we saw um, the nutrient um, impacts, I guess, or the nutrient enrichment indicators being higher, we actually saw higher canopy cover as well, which, which suggests that the, the low-level nutrient stimulus from the salmon farm may actually, may actually be stimulating the kelp productivity on the reef as well. Okay, and you were saying that you've um, only done it three different checks over 18 months and so far you said during your talk no severe nutrient impact uh, but you want to keep monitoring. Yeah I think from what we've, we've seen in, in, in the broad scale um, survey you know we didn't detect any signs where um, you could attribute um, what we saw in the ecosystem to extreme nutrient enrichment but certainly when you're seeing signs that are starting to have sustained cover of, of some of those nutrient indicator species it's definitely worthwhile to keep monitoring and that way um, you know if we are getting um, areas that are losing their kelp canopy we, we can come back to that original data and, and question why. So you're not sure at this point about that as you called it snot seaweed um so we have we have done other studies um that have have targeted the 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 more filamentous algal forms that um that do have that ick factor for for swimmers in in the water um and i think that what really comes through in those data sets is how complex um, the environmental drivers are of those, those nuisance algae um, species, the, the filamentous algae um, that tends to smother all, all the kelp. It, it's a lot of factors that, that go into the sustained growth of those species. Um, wave exposure, nutrient exposure, all of it um, ties into heat. Heat, yep. Daylight, um, all this, there's, you know, it's, it's definitely multifaceted and unfortunately for, for, for such a, a complex problem, um, long-term data is, is quite vital and at, that stage, at this stage we're, we're really missing that. But these sorts of monitoring techniques can, will be able to help fill in those gaps along the way and hopefully we'll be in a much better position in a few years' time. That's research fellow from IMAS, Dr Camille White, who was involved in a project to test new methods of analysing the impact of aquaculture on temperate reefs in the Don Tocasto Channel, talking there to Fiona Breen. Coming up on the country, the issue of bobby calves and what's happening with global wine production. 
Lucy Braden, back on your radio in 2023. I've got a bustling drive show for you today. To keep you updated when you're on the move. Taking a look at your traffic, though, it's looking pretty A-OK right across the network. Informing you with stories from the natural world. What is going on with this cannibalism amongst spiders? To pop culture. And to see a prince do such a tell-all interview. Lucy Braden, back with The Drive Vibe, weekdays from 4pm on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. To the dairy industry now, New Zealand milk giant Fonterra has ordered its Kiwi dairy farmer suppliers to stop disposing of very young calves after the co-op changed its supplier contracts. From June this year, New Zealand farmers who supply Fonterra will be forced to cease euthanising bobby calves on farm, which are surplus animals to dairy operations, and instead raise them to an older age or send them to an abattoir. Kirsty Kitely has worked in the dairy industry in New Zealand and Australia for over 30 years. She's the owner of Port Ferry Beef in South West Victoria and also General Manager Investments with Prime Value Dairy, which owns a dozen dairy farms in Tasmania. Kirsty raises dairy beef on her farm in a bid to improve animal welfare, but says the mid-year de- deadline will be impossible for most farmers to meet. What they're saying is that they've got to have a useful life. So a useful life is, you know, reared for beef, um, slaughtered as veal or pet food. Now you could argue, but the last two of those options doesn't sound that useful. And then, you know, moving on from that. So um, if you have to keep calves on farm for a longer period of time, obviously that creates a whole lot of um, issues. And this is one that I'm grappling with ourselves as a company. So at the moment, we keep 25% of our replacements. Those are heifers. They come back into our herd. The rest of our calves, we rear a proportion of beef calves. Some are sold as bobby calves and some are sold to backgrounders to um, other calf rearers. If farmers have to go from rearing 25% of their calves on farm to rearing 100% of their calves on farm, that takes infrastructure. So it takes, you know, the um, calf shed space and calf sheds and it takes labour. So those are things that take time, to, A, to build or, or to get. And then obviously if you're rearing those animals as a beef calf, you need additional land to be able to do that as well. Being from New Zealand yourself, do you think that there is the infrastructure possible to get this done by just a few months down the track from now? Not a hope in hell, excuse my language, but no, no, definitely not. So we're talking, you know, um, for example, I'm building calf sheds at the moment. We're building calf sheds at the moment in Tasmania. We've just accepted some quotes and we're earliest we can get those calf sheds built um, are May. So ours will be up before we start carving in August. But if I went to a builder now, I mean, I locked that in a few weeks ago. If I went to a builder now in Western Victoria and tried to get someone to build a calf shed, which I did a couple of months ago, he's booked out for a year. So there is, you know, you just wouldn't, you know what it's like in the building industry at the moment, getting materials, it's impossible, and getting and getting labour. So if, if I wanted to build a new calf shed on, on any of our farms in Victoria at the moment for us to start carving in May or in spring, I wouldn't be able to do it for 12 months. So in New Zealand, it'll be exactly the same. There's a shortage of labour, the tradies are all busy, um, shortage of steel, you know, you've got to order things and everything. So um, I'm surprised that they haven't, you know, given a bit longer lead-in time, like say, you know, over the next two years, we're phasing out this, you know, and, and we want to bring it in sort of in two years' time. So it's going to be very tricky. Have you spoken to any of your farmer friends from New Zealand? How are they feeling about this? 
they're a little bit behind, I think, as far as raising calves for beef go in New Zealand. I, I know one corporate that I have a bit to do with, and they they're only just starting to put beef breeds over their over their sort of cows and look at what beef breeds they can use. So whereas we started that, you know, five years ago and, and longer personally. So I think that some of the big corporates might be a little bit slower. It's very difficult to buy land in New Zealand. You know, some of these big corporate farms are owned by um, institutional investors. It's foreign investment. There's no foreign, you can't buy land in New Zealand if you're a foreign investor, you can't own up in, any more than 25%. So if they wanted to go and, if they, for example, if they're already milking 12,000 cows and their investors is a pension fund in Canada or something, they can't go and buy a runoff block to rear beef. And so I did have that conversation actually, I was, I was in Christchurch a couple of months ago, and that's exactly what they envied us because we can actually go and buy land and you know rear beef on it where they don't even have that option. They can't buy a runoff block. It's very difficult um, with interest rates going up and, you know, the cost of funding and the price of land. It's uneconomical to go and buy land to rear dairy beef on if you don't even know what you're going to sell the market, sell the product for. So I'm running into this issue at the moment. You know, I've got 800 head of um, beef calves at the moment and I've just, you know, I'm making inquiries about selling some of them in Tasmania and they probably average about 220 kgs weight. The local meatworks has just come back to us and, you know, they would buy them to finish, to background, to give to background farmers. They won't buy them under 340 kgs. So I've got to find somewhere for those calves to go to. So I believe we've got to start at the other end. We've actually got to say, what's the market for dairy beef? And what's the product we've got? What's the market for dairy beef? Find a market for it, develop the product, develop the taste with our consumers and then filter that back through the system rather than rear all these thousands of animals who potentially haven't got anywhere to go or haven't got a consumer to eat them. So this was a decision with the intended outcome being consumer confidence in the dairy industry and improved animal welfare, but due to a lack of supply chain planning and infrastructure, by the sounds of it, it seems as though this might have negative it could animal be, welfare. It could be worse for the industry. And if people have high expectations, and as farmers do, farmers care for animals, you know, that's why we farm. It's, we, we, we like animals, so animal welfare is number one, you know, and looking after the land and, and et cetera. But if people want, you know, everything done, you know, properly and they want these calves reared on farm, then they've got to make, a, as consumers, they've got to make a commitment Then rather than go to the supermarket and, and buy chicken for protein or buy, you know, straight Angus beef, they're going to commit to buying dairy beef in the supermarkets or at the butchers. Owner of Port Ferry Beef in southwest Victoria and general manager of investments with Prime Value Dairy. Uh, that was Kirsty Kitely speaking with Jane McNaughton. Well, many Australian grape growers have felt the effects of China's tariffs was less demand for grapes, particularly red grapes, but they're not alone. Global wine production was down last year, slightly below the 10-year average, but still downward pressures on consumption means the wine market is still in oversupply. Market Insights Senior Analyst at Wine Australia is Sandy Hathaway. While we tend to think we've got a bit of an oversupply here, globally Australia accounts for just 5% of production so it's pretty small in the scheme of things. And even though we had you know, a record crop in 2021 and then a much smaller one in 2022, we actually still stayed at around 5% and we still maintained our position as the fifth largest producer. But you know, Italy, France and Spain between them account for pretty much half of global production. So it's what happens there that counts. And what we saw in 2022 was that those three countries, they saw a return to 
slightly above average production after having had quite a poor vintage the year before. And then conversely, the Southern Hemisphere producers, of which we're the largest, we saw a kind of return down to average after having had record crops in 2021. So it's your classic swings and roundabouts. So, you know, it sort of sounds like, well, no news. It's another year of an average production. But this is actually quite a good thing, really, because, um, you know, if we'd had this sort of really big global harvest, that would be adding extra pressure to supply in Australia because on the global market you'd be seeing also, you know, an oversupply. So the different hemispheres are largely offsetting each other. Looking at the breakdown between white and red grapes, Australia really lent into the red grapes with the demand coming from China, but that has now put pressure on the, the red grapes in Australia because there isn't the demand or the availability of the Chinese market that there was. This looks like it's being played out across the world, though, as well, and lots of these countries aren't affected by the, the tariffs that Australia is into China. So what's driving this, this lack of demand for red grapes? We've seen an increase in our supply of reds, as you said, sort of lent into it as demand increased. And, and it was largely driven by China. But, yeah, the same was happening in France. They also were experiencing big extra demand from China. So what's then happened is, particularly with Australia's red mine supply that was going to China now having no home at all, um, and overall China kind of has dropped by about 300 million litres in a couple of years. So they've taken a lot off the market. It's not like they just said, oh, well, we won't get Australian red wine anymore, we'll get it from somewhere else. They pretty much stopped buying or greatly reduced what they were buying or importing probably mainly to do with COVID, but, you know, other factors as well, like an increased demand for their local wine. So, you know, essentially that put pressure on red supply around the globe. Um, And the other thing to note is that it looks like it's this dramatic increase in red supply and nothing in white. And that's partly because the white harvests around the world, ironically, just when they were needed, they were down. So particularly New Zealand in 2021 had a very, very small harvest. And their Sauvignon Blanc is so popular that, you know, that created this global demand and global short supply of Sauvignon Blanc. And South Africa and Australia also, you know, didn't have enough. That's Market Insights Analyst at Wine Australia, Sandy Hathaway, speaking to Cassie Huff about the latest uh, figures on global wine production. Still to come on the country are rainfall expectations for the next three months, the cattle herd continuing to grow and grow, and livestock markets with Richard Bailey, of course, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The Electoral Commission today believes the annual political donations data. Parties only have to reveal the sources of donations and other payments over $14,500. The Tasmanian Liberals received about $3.8 million, the party detailing the sources of just $630,000. Tasmanian Labor revealed the sources of $113,000 out of a total of nearly one point. $1 million. The president of the Australian Medical Association in the Northern Territory says he's concerned about the difficulty in attracting doctors and nurses to Alice Springs due to the ongoing social issues in the town. The Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation NT branch has previously said that 50% of nursing positions are being filled by agency staff and casuals and the crime wave is making it difficult to attract new staff. Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt says 
says there needs to be better investment in disaster resilience measures. The federal government has announced an independent review into Commonwealth disaster management funding. It's estimated just 3% goes into mitigation measures, while 97% is spent on recovery. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Matthew Thomas joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Matthew. Hi, Tony. How are you? Yeah, going well. Rainfall figures. Uh, there's a bit about. Oh, look, certainly um, to 9am, most of it was around the, the west of the state, a little bit pushing into the um, the far northwest, but generally less than a, a millimetre, so only sort of 0.4 at, um, at um, Smithton and um, Sisters Beach. I think there was two millimetres at Luncheon Hill. But look, five to 15 millimetres generally about the west um, and a millimetre or two pushing into the, the hue. And since 9am, that's where the, um, the rainfall has distributed a little bit more across um, the the state, and we've seen some reasonable falls about parts of the um, the southeast, and um, and now beginning to push up the um, the east as well. So Campania's picked up six millimetres, which I think is probably um, quite a, a useful um, rainfall um, amount for them. But um, but generally, amounts have been in the um, the sort of the, the one to five millimetres about the west, central, and um, and southern parts. Very little seen across the north. But there's a bit on the way. Yes, so um, we've had a, the first cold front move through um, and in the cooler air um, to the, the west, we've got a low pressure system developing um, and that's well to the south of the bite at the moment, but that is going to approach Tasmania into um, tomorrow and we are going to see um, a cold, another cold front across the state. So for the remainder of today, we're going to see the showers about the western, central, um, southern and eastern parts of the state, really contracting to the, the northeast into the, the late afternoon and clearing. But as that cold front approaches tomorrow, the winds are going to swing around northwesterly and we're going to see the showers push into the, the west and the north and they're going to tend to rain into the um, into the, the afternoon as the, the front um, approaches and moves through. And so we'll have the, the rain about the, the west and the north into the, the afternoon and evening and um, and showers elsewhere. So we're looking at around 10 to 20 millimetres generally around the, the west and the north, around 2 to 5 millimetres about the, um, the the east coast and the, the southeast. So a little bit, um, a little bit lighter totals there. Um, we could see 30 to 40 millimetres about elevated parts of the, um, the north in particular up against the, the western tiers and the northeast um, ranges. Um, that um, area of low pressure will just be sitting to the, the west of Tasmania um, come Friday morning and, um, and we'll see some showers just continue about the, the west and north coast. Um, a little bit more modest in, um, in totals through, um, through Friday. We're really only looking um, at... Um, at um, five to ten millimetres, about um, parts of the the west and northwest coasts, um, and the showers though will extend else um, to remaining districts during the um, the um, the morning, and we'll see around um, two to five millimetres elsewhere with those showers extending. Um, through the, um, the the morning into the afternoon, as that area of low pressure just remains around Tasmania and moves over the state. So, there's multiple low centres will have periods where the the showers will um, will ease back um, and um, and then come again. Um, and then, as that area of low pressure moves away to the east into Saturday, and we move into a, um, a southwesterly stream, um, we'll um, see that the showers um, be a mainly around the west, um, south and the east um, on Saturday. Very little getting into the, the north coast. 
and the the amounts will um, will be highest about the um, the west in particular. We're looking at another ten to twenty millimeters there, um, but we'll see another five to um, to fifteen millimeters um, about parts of the um, the southeast in particular, the, the coastal areas, um, perhaps um, through um, through um, the Coal River Valley into the um, and pushing up towards Mariah Island. Um, but then a ridge of high pressure dominates um, from Sunday onwards and we re return to more average um, summer temperatures and the, the rainfall really um, eases back um, from Sunday um, into to early next week. Really Sunday's just some showers about the, the west and far south and less than, um, than five millimetres in those showers. Okay, Matthew, any warnings? Um, look, we do have a few warnings. Um, so for the remainder of today, we've got um, strong wind warning for the uh, for northwestern coastal waters, Sandy Cape to Stanley, eastern coastal waters, St Helens Point to southeast Cape. Into tomorrow, though, with that low pressure system approaching, we'll have a gale warning for western coastal waters between southeast Cape and Stanley for north to northwesterly winds. Strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters. So for the coastal waters, for the remainder of today, southwesterly winds to 10 to 20 knots, although west to northwesterly about the upper east um, until we see that um, that um, front just finish um, crossing those coastal waters um, mid-afternoon. Um, the wind's reaching 25 to 30 knots about parts of the northwest, southeast and east at times during this afternoon. Um, and the wind's tending west to northwesterly during the evening. Into tomorrow, we've got those north to northwesterly winds 15 to 25 knots about the west, grading to 10 to 15 knots about the east. But they'll increase in the morning to be um, 25 to 35 knots about the west, 20 to 30 knots about remaining coastal waters. And the winds will ease to 10 to 20 knots about the west late afternoon once the, the front has crossed and about remaining waters in the early evening and then shifting westerly at um, 20 to 30 knots about the northwest again late evening. Um, in terms of the swells around the west and the south, we've got a west to southwesterly near three metres building to um, four to five metres by tomorrow evening. Um, most of the, the build will occur um, during tomorrow afternoon and evening. Um, about the, um, the north, we've got a confused swell with a westerly below one metre and a northeasterly below one metre. And about the east, there's a southerly below um, one metre and a northeasterly around one metre. The wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel shows a significant wave of 3.8 metres, a maximum wave of 6.7 metres, a 13 second period. And the wave rider boy at Mariah Island is showing a significant wave of 1.1 metre, a maximum wave of 1.8 metres and a 13 second period. Beauty, thank you for that, Matthew. Have a great day. You too, Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. I trust you are enjoying your first day of February. It's amazing, isn't it? What happened to January? Where did it go? Anyway, what's going to happen for the next three months with regard to rainfall? Well, the latest climate outlook for the next three months is out from the Bureau. Senior climatologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, David Wilson, says the rainfall outlook for most of the state is expected to be around the average mark for February, March and April. For February, we're looking like having above average rainfall. It's like a greater than 60% chance of above average rainfall across Tasmania. And in that northeast, well, for the kind of Tamar catchment, Meander and South Esk and so on, that chance rises to a 65%, 65% chance of above median rainfall for February. For March, the chance of exceeding median rainfall is about 50%. So we're looking at about average rainfall for March. And for the three-month period of February to April, it's about average across Tasmania. 
Slightly lower chance on the west coast, slightly higher on the east, but about average for Tasmania. And what about the east coast of the mainland? What's that looking like, David? Well, it's quite similar to the Tasmanian signal, Tony. So a little bit of increased chance of rainfall for um, the Gippsland coast and south coast of New South Wales for February. About average for March and for the February to April period, about average, slightly raised uh, probability um, around the south coast of New South Wales. And David, what is actually driving the weather pattern at the moment? Well, good question. We're still in La Nina. So while the signals are uh, weakened since the peak of um, spring of last year, the ocean temperatures have eased away from La Nina thresholds. The atmosphere still remains with uh, La Nina characteristics, but all the international models anticipate returning to neutral values uh, in February, in fact, this month. Thank so you. when we have La Nina, that increases the chance of above average rainfall for um, northern and eastern Australia during summer. Are there any predictions about where we might go with those weather patterns? Uh, well, the La Nina signal, the models are suggesting going neutral by February, March. Beyond that, the models are a little bit, they're suggesting moving towards neutral territory for the next couple of months. Uh, beyond, beyond April, or beyond um, autumn, I should say, uh, model reliability is not so good, so we shouldn't read too much into those distant forecasts at this okay. point. Okay. Now, temperatures, uh, what are we looking at for the next three months heading into autumn? Okay. Well, for February, Tasmania is likely to see above-average maximum temperatures. Around Campbelltown, we're going to see sort of close to average maximum temperatures in February, but the, it seems the further you get from Campbelltown, the more likely you are to see higher than average maximum temperatures. And what was January like with regard to uh, the rainfall? Rainfall for January, well down on, on the average, almost 50% below um, the average. Okay. So that brings us to the problem that uh, there's been plenty of growth because of the uh, the spring rains. Uh, there's plenty of fuel on the ground and uh, February is not, uh, not quite a quiet month um, in many years uh, with regard to bushfires. Uh, that's right, Tony, especially on the West Coast where we had very much below average rainfall for January. And it's been below average rainfall there for a little while now. Yes, the bushfire situation is certainly one to watch throughout February. That's David Wilson, Senior Climatologist with the Bureau of Meteorology on the latest three-month climate outlook. And if you want more details, uh, there's a video on the BOM website which outlines uh, what's going to happen or what the predictions are at least. Now, sometimes flower addictions can get out of hand like growing dahlias en masse. They're large, showy perennials, beautiful, grown from a tuber and blooming right now. Scientist Liz Priest has been propagating hundreds of varieties that have spilled beyond her cottage garden and into her parents' farm in the northern Midlands. She spoke to Larissa Smith about some of the ups and downs of this season. So this has all been, only been here the last six months, really. So we had our berry patch there, and I saw this space here was going to waste. I'm moving out there with the tiller. <laughs> Here we go again. Uh, so, yeah, so we put uh, six or so beds in there, but then got them all in the ground. It was all looking beautiful. I'd fertilised them all up, lots of sheep manure. Came back down, and then that's when we had, the you know, these rainfall events, weekend after weekend after weekend. Basically had a, a river running down it, through the middle of it. Yeah, so that's not ideal. What, what did you have in the ground? Oh, it was full. I'd also had some inside, tubers inside, which I'd uh, pre-sprouted and was taking cuttings from. So I had multiple, you know, hundreds of cuttings inside that I then went in and filled in the gaps. So hence it's what I've got out there is very late. 
what the one there's some that have survived that are now flowering and I've got little you know, cuttings that are only you know a foot tall in the, over the winter I'm going to flip it all around and have the the beds running down and into raised into raised beds and and that'll give the the, the water you know a channel to run down through so what sort of dahlias do you have in here because I can tell this is your passion there what you know there was about over a hundred different varieties in here. Also, uh, seedlings that I've grown of my own. That whole row, or row and a half, is all new seedlings. I've got no idea what they'll be yet, so I'm very excited for them to open up. And that comes naturally to you because you do have a background in horticulture. Yes, so propagating and germinating seeds and raising seeds is my passion, really. Yep. Like my little babies, so I love doing that. Yeah. And this is now your side hustle. Yeah, yeah. Work all day with plants and come home and do it again. I don't know. I've, I'm a weird, <laughs> a weird specimen, really. <laughs> when did you realise that you had a, a business on your hands? Well, it sort of uh, just, you know, grew to the point where when, do you, when does your hobby become a, you know, a small business? It's, it's customers were coming to us. So, and still we haven't really actively pursued anyone and we're, you know, happily with the amount of customers that we have got now, it's anymore and it'll be a bit crazy busy, but yeah, it's it's a nice, happy medium. And I might bring in your husband, Travis. You're quite instrumental in this business as well because you need bees to help pollinate some of these flowers and that's that's your job. Yes, that's that's correct. Yep. So yeah, I think it was about two years ago, about mid COVID, I got interested in bees. I sort of always had a bit of an interest to have my own hive, but uh, during COVID we had a lot of a lot of time on our hands obviously so um, yeah pursued that and uh, started off with one hive. My mentor that um, helped me get that hive up and going sort of laughed and I said I was only going to have one <laughs> and um, he said no you'll have 40 in no time and so I'm at um, just over 10 at the minute so I'm getting there <laughs> um, but yeah just the, since we've had the bees just the um, improvement in the flowers and in the garden in our stone fruits um, and our blueberries and raspberries, strawberries, it's just been unbelievable. So, yeah, they've been a great asset. And obviously we get the beautiful raw honey off them as well that we can use ourselves and sell on. It's um, yeah, been a great asset. We're getting a good harvest now. Um, lucky I run uh, polyhives, so they usually seem to produce a little bit better than the more traditional wooden hives. What's the difference? Mainly just the, um, they're made up of um, poly, the actual hive is. Yeah, so better insulation uh, properties, so uh, the bees are a lot warmer inside, so they breed up better in early spring, so then I've got the capacity to... Uh, a lot more bees to go and collect honey so yeah so I think I've harvested out of six of my hives already and I've got about over 100 kilos so of honey so yeah I'm, I'm pleased with that considering the bad start we've had so and I'm about ready to do another harvest now so yeah so they collect a lot of obviously around the garden they'll collect a lot of the the nectar off our early apples flowering yeah our blueberries and raspberries and then we've also got a lot of um, broad acre cropping around the area too like canola prickly box in the bush as well that's a native native species of bush uh, that's a really nice uh, sweet honey as well so very pleased with what they're collecting to keep the flower beds healthy throughout the year you need a lot of uh, manure also protection over the soil what do you use for, for compost and for cover luckily I'm only about 50 metres away from the shearing shed so I cart my wheelbarrow backwards and forwards put a very very thick layer of sheep poo 
and then also another big thick layer of pea straw. Definitely. You actually have peas in this year. Yeah, so that's a huge, huge uh, cost saving, hopefully, for us to have our own pea straw and not have to buy that in. So I've just got mixed beds here, and these ones in here are, are uh, I've got them sorted, they were sorted into red, white, and pink beds. So mixture of uh, dahlia types, so the cactus, the balls, the dinner plates, yes. They're all for cutting, so yeah, as soon as there's a bloom, it's cut, gone, off for sale. The best time I find is trying to get up about six before everyone else is up and come out here. And how do you keep them cool? Because it can get pretty warm out here at Cressy. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, so yeah, so picking first thing, and then they go straight into the water, buckets of water, and into somewhere cool and dark. So I usually put them straight into inside, but we also have access to a cool room on farm so when it's really hot we can use that. One of my favourites this season is Feverfew, this one here. It looks really good mixed in with the with the dahlias and Status is another one that I use a lot of in my dahlia bunches. Yeah. And these beauties? They're, that's Echinacea which is, uh, they're very impressive. Super cool and the good thing about those is that they die down and come back. What do your parents think of the use of the land? Well it was lying here wasted space really so you know it's really good to turn it into you know well one food for us which they also get to share a little side hustle for us as well so my great-grandparents built this house and settled in this uh, family property in the early 1900s so and your your parents are still running the farm today yes that's right yeah it's a nice tradition to carry on it's Liz and Travis Priest from Little Forest Garden south of Cressy chatting there to Larissa Smith about growing dahlia flowers and producing honey from their rural property. And uh, on a text line, good day, winner. I can't do that limerick about dahlias. It did bring a smile to my face, though. Thank you. Can't do it on the radio. Australia's cattle herd is set to reach its largest size in nearly a decade, according to Meat and Livestock Australia. Expected to hit 28.8 million head this year, the cattle. The increase in numbers is now beyond rebuild status. MLA's Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson says the growth is underpinned by a few key factors. 2023 will be a year of transition for the cattle industry and, and quite an optimistic one. So the retention or the record retention of animals on farm in 2022 and, and parts of 2021 is driving that increase we see eventuating. Secondly, it's the genetic improvement which is affecting productivity of the national herd and then also the medium-term confidence that is a product of, of ample availability of water and grass for producers. And those three key factors, when you bring them together, are underpinning that increase in supply that, that we expect to eventuate uh, well into 2024. Are we likely to see this growth continue nationally? Yeah, yeah. The expectation across when you look at the key metrics, that expectation is for that to continue regardless of the seasonal outcomes because of those factors I just mentioned previously, which um, which are extending across large parts of, of Australia's cattle producing regions. If the larger size was back in 2014, what were the cattle prices doing then? And is there a trend that we can anticipate with pricing and herd numbers? In line with the, the increase in supply we, we expect in 2023, we, we also, uh, and industry analysts have also forecast that the, 
cattle prices will return to operate at longer term averages. And because of that, there's, there's different dynamics between the necessity to demand cattle in the market because producers have rebuilt their numbers they have the availability of stock on farms, so there's not as much demand. But regardless of that, those longer term averages still promote really positive pricing environments for producers uh, right across right across the different articles of animals that, that Australia delivers to both to the domestic and global market. And can we forecast what some of those long term average prices would look like? Yeah, so in 2023, the forecast for the benchmark Eastern Young Cattle Indicator uh, is for it to reach 811 cents a kilo carcass weight by the middle of this year, 30 June 2023. And then importantly, the introduction of the National Feeder Steer Indicator, which represents a transactable article of animal in the market, is forecast to reach 419 or 420 cents a kilo live weight. So even though those prices uh, are a step down from, from the record years of 2020 to 2022, the, the feeder steer price would still remain 33 cents or eight and a half percent above the five-year average and the eastern young cattle indicator if it reached 811 cents would still remain 61 cents or eight percent above the five-year average as well so the market forecasts still remain optimistic and positive for an improvement in prices from current rates and they do forecast that they'll remain above longer term averages as well how does that then position the Australian beef industry in the global supply chain? 2023 will be a very interesting year and a very closely followed year in the sense that the situation involving the herd liquidation and potential supply contractions in the US because of the drought will determine uh, the US flipping from a net exporter to a net importer because their domestic market is so big. And as a result of that, that'll mean Australia's market share in line with rising production can improve in key export markets such as Japan and South Korea, and then also the US as well, which really bodes in a positive light and promotes a lot of optimism for the cattle industry to deliver that high quality consistent beef to three of our major markets around the world due to that US supply contraction. And you did just touch upon weather. Um, how has the extreme wet weather and floods across the country over the past few years played their role in the recent data? At an overall level, the the weather and, and the really the, the some of the best years uh, producers have seen in a very long time consecutively has been very positive. But we know there has been challenges right across the country to differing extents that have impacted cattle performance and, and have been impactful at an overall level or at an individual level to producers but generally these seasonal conditions have been fantastic and they've really promoted the positivity and the growth in in numbers where we're expecting to see eventuate but there have been challenges um, such as the recent flooding in the Kimberley and and Pilbara and they're also that they do need to be recognized as as impactful to those producers up there. And when we are looking at challenges, how could the labour shortage derail a top herd performance like this? Labour issues in the processing sector will be sort of the key determinant of cattle slaughter performance this year. And as a result of that, um, MLAs recognised in their forecast two scenarios. The first scenario for cattle slaughter is based upon 6.6 million head being processed. And that's, that's with the expectation of normality and actual cattle supply being delivered into those facilities. If the processing sector can't deal with and negate their current labour issues, the forecast is for cattle slaughter to reach 6 million head 
and that's firm on 2022 numbers. So there's no real change in or any improvement in cattle slaughter figures, despite the fact that the herd's continuing to rise. And that will cause issues for the industry right across the supply chain if the labour concerns the processing sector is facing can't be negated or dealt with. It's MLA Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris about the size of the Australian cattle herd. Expected to hit 28.8 million this year, so the herd rebuilt. Very much on track. Okay, so the numbers are there. What about the prices? Let's uh, find out. Head out to the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. How are you going? Yeah, going pretty well. I'm still trying to to get those tomatoes to go from one colour to the other. They're still green. My little ones are firing away. My green ones, my big ones are still very green. Yeah, you got a good crop? Yeah, Uh, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like to say too much. I mean, Anthony Barnes will be listening, and he, he's always got the best crop in Tasmania. Yeah, uh, we might have to catch up with him, I think. <laughs> All right, now, Power Rani, yesterday, what happened? Uh, only a small number of cattle, but they were good quality right through. Yearling sold, still sold very well. Steers made 394 to 410. Heifers, 360 to 402 cents a kilo. Restockers bought a few heifers for three forty six to three fifty four cents. Good quality grown steers. They all made three hundred and sixty cents. Most went to local butchers, and restockers paid two ninety four to three thirty cents. Just a few export heavy export heifers. They made three oh two to three twenty two, and heavy cows made two forty eight to two eighty two cents a kilo, which was close to twenty cents, averaging twenty cents less than last week. That's sort of been that cow market's been on free fall for. A month now, uh, a few medium and heavy bulls made two ten to two forty eight cents a kilo. Okay, what's coming up in the cattle market? Um, well, next in a fortnight's time, we've got uh, the regular store February store cattle sale at Perenna. So it'd be interesting to see where that's going. We'll talk on Friday more, but there's been a bit of a hiccup in the beef industry as far as um, over the hook prices go, etc. So we'll talk more about that on Friday. Yeah, it might ask you too about the uh, the size of the cattle herd when we talk on Friday. It's back to where it was in 2014. So we might look at what that means for uh, for cattle producers. But let's head out to the lamb and sheep market. Yeah, we had a few less lambs, but uh, and a lot of them are still in the wool and still pretty average quality. But the really good quality lambs sold very well. They were fifteen to twenty dollars dearer. Probably the best um, lamb market we've had for oh, I don't know, probably two or three months now. Quite a bit of competition across the board. The best heavy lambs made one hundred and eighty-eight to two hundred and twenty-six dollars a head. Trade lambs one hundred and fifty to one hundred and ninety. A light trade one hundred and thirty-one to one hundred and forty-eight dollars a head. Restockers paid 62 to 78 for very small lambs. I reckon some of those lambs were anything to 30 to 40 dollars dearer than last week. The light lambs 80 to 106, and light trade 110 to 125. There are a couple of pens sold to restockers higher than that that weren't far off killable lambs. Um, over in the mutton yard, there were more mutton, 1,260 mutton. The market was pretty similar to last week, apart from extra heavy sheep that were pretty hard to sell at any money. They made 36 to $60. Your other heavy, <coughs> heavy ewes and weathers made 66 to 73 Medium weights, 63 to 66 and light, 40 to $48 a head. So as you can see, the vast majority of sheep are making sort of in that 50 to $65 range in that sort of bracket. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk more 
about the livestock markets when we talk on Friday. Richard? Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Barney back on Friday with, as we say, all the information from the mainland markets on the Country Hour. Uh, that wraps it up for today. Don't forget to visit our rural page, ABC Rural Online, or our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of great stories there from across Tasmania, across the country, across the world. That's our program for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.